welcome back to the number one podcast in the world. Here, we discuss everything from current affairs to movie reviews. Today's episode covers an incredibly fascinating topic, Marvel. From the comics, the start of the distinguishable franchise, to how the company has revolutionized cinema, this episode has it all. To all the Black Panther fans, we will cover a Black Panther Wakanda Forever review and even get round to ranking Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield and of course Tom Holland. And to you more serious fanatics, listen in as Mustafa, Mariam, Aditi and Kumars and I tell you all about the Holy Trinity and the history of the MCU. So sit back, relax and enjoy the episode. The history of Marvel movies doesn't technically begin with a four-star review that Roger Ebert gave John Favreau's Iron Man. After all, there were movies based on Marvel properties before from filmmakers like Sam Raimi and Ang Lee. But the history of Marvel changed forever with that 2008 action film starring Robert Downey Jr. What would become known as the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or the MCU, was born. Marvel was started in 1939 by Martin Goodman as Timely Comics and by 1951 had generally become known as Atlas Comics. The Marvel era began in 1961, the year that the company launched the Fantastic Four and the other superhero titles created by Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, and many others. And so the Marvel brand, which had been used over the years, was solidified as the company's primary brand. The company's first true editor, writer-artist Joe Simon, teamed with artist Jack Kirby to create one of the first patriotically-themed superheroes, Captain America, in Captain America Comics in March 1941. It too proved a hit, with sales of nearly one million. However, the post-war American comic market saw superheroes falling fast out of fashion. Goodman's comic book line dropped them for the most part and expanded into a wider variety of genres that even Timely had published, featuring horror, westerns, humour, talking animal, men's adventure drama, giant monster, crime and war comics, and later adding jungle books, romance titles, espionage, and even medieval adventure, bible stories, and sports. The first modern comic books under the Marvel Comics brand were the science fiction anthology Journey into Mystery, issue 69, and the teen humour title Patsy Walker, issue 95. Both covered dated June 196. Then, in the wake of DC Comics' success in reviving superheroes in the late 1950s and early 1960s, particularly with The Flash, Green Lantern, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Green Arrow, and other members of of the team, the Justice League of America, Marvel followed in suit. In 1961, writer-editor Stanley revolutionized superhero comics by introducing superheroes designed to appeal to older readers than the predominantly child audiences of the medium, thus ushering in what Marvel later called the Marvel Age of Comics. Modern Marvel's first superhero team, the titular stars of the Fantastic Four in 1961, broke convention with the other comic book archetypes of the time by squabbling, holding grudges both deep and petty, and eschewing enormity or secret identities in favor of celebrity status. Subsequently, Marvel Comics developed a reputation for focusing on characterization and adult issues to a greater extent than most superhero comics before them, a quality that the new generation of older readers had appreciated. This applied to the Amazing Spider-Man title in particular, which turned out to be Marvel's most successful book, 
Its young hero suffered from self-doubt and mundane problems like any other teenager, something which we, many readers could identify. The Marvel Cinematic Universe Trinity refers to the three leads of the franchise from phase one to phase three. This group consists of three compelling and complex characters, Iron Man, who appears in nine films, Captain America, appearing in 11, and Thor, who features in eight films. These titular characters act as the main protagonists of the MCU, with Captain America and Iron Man having a trilogy, and Thor completing a tetralogy in July of this year with the release of Thor, Love and Thunder. Steve Rogers, more commonly known as Captain America, was introduced in his solo film, Captain America, The First Avenger, a period piece set in 1942 amid World War II. The movie centers around Steve's, played by Chris Evans, desire to join the army to fight for the United States and take down Hydra, a Nazi group led by the infamous villain, Red Skull. As an audience, we immediately fall in love with this character, as he is portrayed to be plucky and humble. The second film in the trilogy was Captain America The Winter Soldier, a masterfully crafted film which took inspiration from 90s political thrillers as it places Steve in uncomfortable situations unaware of who is a member of S.H.I.E.L.D. or HYDRA, while also dealing with the news that an old friend has returned, yet unaware of his past life. The movie garnered rave reviews and is seen by many as MCU's best offering. Captain America's trilogy closed off with Captain America's Civil War, a phenomenal film which pitted our heroes against one another, as Iron Man and Captain America have a dispute over the rights of heroes. The film introduces fan favorites Black Panther, played by the late Chadwick Boseman, and Tom Holland's Spider-Man. This film rivaled Captain America 2 with amazing action, humor, and spectacle. Steve Rogers' final appearance in the MCU was in Avengers Endgame. This was the final movie in the Infinity Saga and closed the stories of several characters. Thor Odinson, played by Chris Hemsworth, debuted in the MCU in Thor, the fourth installment of the MCU. The film centers around Thor being stripped of his powers by his father Odin and sent to Earth. This movie had mixed reviews, however, it still had funny moments and proved Hemsworth could handle such a major role. The third Thor film saw a drastic change in Thor's character. This was a result of poor reviews of the second Thor film, The Dark World, saying that it was too bland and the character was stale. Thor Ragnarok turned Thor into comedic gold, as Hemsworth brilliantly played off a naive and confident persona. Taika Waititi, the director of this movie, injected life back into the Thor franchise and reinstated hope in many Thor fans' eyes. Thor's most recent appearance was in Thor Love and Thunder. The film increased the comedy scene in Ragnarok tenfold, and Taika Waititi brought more fun and zaniness to the big screen. Hemsworth, once again, showed great comedic timing and was a thrill to watch. Tony Stark, portrayed by Robert Downey Jr., made his first appearance in the 2008 movie Iron Man, directed by John Favreau. It was officially released in the USA on May 2, 2008, as the first film in Phase 1 of the MCU. The film tells the story of Tony Stark, a billionaire industrialist and genius inventor who was kidnapped and forced to build a devastating weapon. Instead, using his intelligence and ingenuity, Tony builds a high-tech suit of armor and escapes captivity. When he uncovers a nefarious plot with global implications, he dons his powerful armor and vows to protect the world as Iron Man. 
Downey was quick to boost Marvel's reputation and secure 2008's Iron Man as one of the best Marvel movies in the history of MCU. A review from RogerBert.com uh, said that Downey's performance is intriguing and unexpected. He doesn't behave like most superheroes. He lacks psychic weight and gravitas. Tony Stark is created from the persona Downey has fashioned through many movies. Irreverent, quirky, self-deprecating, and wisecracking. Favreau's work and input into the creation of one of Marvel's favourite superheroes attracted millions of fans, allowing the movie itself to garner over 580 million US dollars. Unfortunately for all the diehard Marvel fans, Iron Man's last appearance was in the MCU was in Avengers Endgame. Tony Stark died at the end of Avengers Endgame, but before that, he saved the entire universe from Thanos and his forces by snapping them out of existence and ending their threat once and for all. But the use of all the six Infinity Stones at once took its toll on his body and he died of grievous injuries. Downey ended his Marvel career exceptionally, leaving all Marvel fans devastated at the loss of a greatly loved character. In the comics, Peter Parker is described as Midtown High's professional wallflower. It's weird to see almost 30-year-old actors playing teenagers, but Toby manages to pull it off like a pro. He's a true outsider, working at the Daily Bugle to earn some extra cash, a clumsy nerd with high intellectual skills able to talk about complex scientific subjects with Dr. Octavius and Norman Osborn. But with Garfield, it's hard to accept him as a teenager because he was 27 while filming and, let's face it, Andrew looks too cruel to be a nerd and a loser in high school. Stan Lee set out to make sure Parker was not jacked and a smooth talker, but that he had money problems and could be relatable to a large audience. Holland was 20 when he joined the MCU films, making him closest to his character's age. However, was he relatable? His actions don't have severe consequences, besides losing permission to a billion-dollar suit that he didn't even make. So, overall, while Andrew and Tom killed it in the movies, Ultimately, Toby captured the essence of a relatable Parker in a way that was far more to the spirit of the comics. This guy, Flash Thompson, he probably deserved what happened. But just because you can beat him up, doesn't give you the right to. Remember, with great power comes great responsibility. Secondly, costumes. Both Maguire and Garfield's spider suits stuck to tip Typical red-blue costumes, which are the most comic-accurate, so there's not much discourse. But in Spider-Man 3, Toby was wearing the symbiote suit, or as fewer die-hard fans know it as, the black suit. While it didn't provide Toby with any new Spider-Man special abilities, it just looked awesome. So I must give extra points to Maguire's costume for the epicness and variety. Holland's costume was a pajama-like set, which added a comedic factor, but his outfit made a full 180 when he got the suit created by Tony Stark. The most defining difference between Tom's and the other two is expressive eyes. Small details like this are important because now Spidey can express his emotions without taking his mask off and staying anonymous. Plus, it's impossible not to mention the breathtaking iron spider suit with the metallic limbs in Spider-Man Homecoming and Avengers Infinity War. This combined with the stealth suit, aka Night Monkey, a red-black suit that Parker developed himself, and the fact that his suits had built-in artificial intelligence with the most advanced tech supplies such as wings, situation-specific useful modes, web grenades, and ricochet webs introduced to us in the Spider-Man Homecoming movie by Suit Lady, I mean Karen, by far gives first place to MCU costumes. Next up, best relationship? 
Spider-Man movies aren't just about the insane acrobatic skills, but the underlying romance plot as well. Gwen and Peter, Peter are the superior couple hands down. I don't even think we need to discuss that. Tom Holland's Peter and Zendaya's MJ are the next best in the film, but their real life relationship definitely is tied with Emma Stone and Andrew Garfield. Tobey Maguire and MJ are not even on the ranking. They suck. In every single of Sam Raimi's movies, she cheats on someone. Rewatch and try to spot it. And finally, best Spider-Man. As soon as Tobey Maguire's character put on the mask, he turned into that ideal superhero who was able to sacrifice his own life to save someone. The well-known scene with the train is an ideal example of this. Maguire's Spider-Man wasn't just using his strength and combat skills to defeat criminals. He was also able to see the good in the bad. That's how he managed to get Dr. Octavius back on the right track during their fight. Plus, Sam Raimi's trilogy includes tons of amazing swinging scenes. Unfortunately, Maguire's character just doesn't have a good sense of humor, which is a key part of any film. While Tom Holland's Spider-Man is more childlike and awkward in the first movie, I think that's quite realistic. In the comics, Peter gained his powers after being bitten by a radioactive spider at the age of 15. Would you be able to be heroic and just overall perfect if you're starting your GCSEs and one day you're expected to protect New York of all places? Garfield's Spider-Man never fails to amuse the audience while fighting crime. Not only does he do insane flips and tricks and turns while swinging and showing the city's beautiful cityscapes, but combined with the small slow motion scenes of the amazing Spider-Man fighting, it creates a perfect fight scene, unlike the original Spider-Man movies. So I have to say, Andrew is the better Spider-Man and Toby is the better Peter Parker. But the best interpretation of the character overall goes to Tom Holland because he created a separation between the two personas. Toby's Spider-Man is Peter with a mask and Andrew's Peter is just as heroic as Spider-Man. We all agree they were an iconic trio in No Way Home. Whatever Spider-Man you prefer, the original Peter, the fan favorite Peter, or Zendaya's Peter. But the real answer to who is the best Spider-Man is Miles Morales from Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Kevin Feige is the president of Marvel Studios and the primary producer of the Marvel Cinematic Universe franchise since 2007. His films have a total worldwide box gross office of over $26.8 billion, making him the highest grossing producer of all time, with Avengers Endgame becoming the highest grossing film ever on release. The MCU has an undeniable impact on cinema. Ever since Iron Man came out, Marvel released other interconnected superhero films, for example Thor or Captain America. Feige saw the potential of building a shared universe with these movies, utilising the post-credit scenes, and these films all became massive box office hits. Every Marvel edition explores a new aspect of the shared universe. Although films feature many different characters and periods, they're all united by an overarching storyline. This form of storytelling has strongly influenced the world of cinema and many other franchises have attempted similar models. MCU's future projects are set in Phase 5. Phase 5, along with Phase 4 and Phase 6, constitutes the multiverse saga. Phase 5 features all of the Marvel Studios productions set to be released from 2023 to mid-2024. The films of the phase include Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, starring Paul Rudd and Evangeline Lilly. The ensemble Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, 
The Marvels starring Brie Larson, Tiana Paris, and Iman Vellani. As well as Blaze starring Mahershala Ali, Captain America New World Order starring Anthony Mackie, and the Ensemble Thunderbolts. The Disney Plus television series of the phase include the second season of What If? Narrated by Jeff Jeffrey Wright, Secret Invasion starring Samuel L. Jackson and Ben Mendelsohn, Echo starring Alaka Cox. The second season of Loki starring Tom Hiddleston, Ironheart starring Dominique Thorne, Agatha, Coven of Chaos starring Catherine Han, and Daredevil, Born Again starring Charlie Cox. Generation Z has grown up with Marvel, and vice versa. These characters have been a part of our childhood, and unknowingly, as they progress, they have affected us in one way or another. Since the very beginning with Captain America and Iron Man, we've seen two contrasting characters that both taught us multiple valuable lessons. No, not the Captain America detention videos. So, you got detention. We've grown up with characters that taught us all about life and its challenges, whether that would be the importance of doing the right thing, learning to embrace and forgive yourself, and moving on from your past mistakes. These fictitious characters have managed to teach society about life. We've seen many questionable moments when our favorite characters made mistakes, fell down, and caused bigger issues than the ones they've solved. As we grow up, the MCU grows up with us, We've had to learn to let go of the past and move into new moments in life. That's what it was always about. That's why it'll always be round. As movies like Iron Man and Captain America grew in people's hearts, we found an attachment to these characters. After Endgame, people were naturally devastated because they'd grown up with these people. It gives children a role model to look up to, yet also encourages them to move forward and try their best. The MCU has caused people to be more understanding of themselves and others on a universal level. It shows how these aren't necessarily good guys or bad guys, just people with problems. Spider-Man No Way Home does a really good job at doing that by showing that the villains could be changed. We've grown up with these characters one way or another, and let's see what the MCU has in stock for the future. And welcome to the movie review segment where we have Anch Vinger, the founder of Anch FM, the Instagram account that reviews the best movies and albums of the year. He's a future filmmaker in the making. Uh, hi, uh, Kimaz. It's really great to be here. Yeah, I really love movies. Uh, yeah, so specifically for this episode, we want to ask you about your thoughts on the new Black Panther 2. Yeah, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, uh, easily the biggest movie of the month. Quite a few thoughts on it, uh, so I'll just quickly go through them. Yeah, but, let's start with the positives. Alright, uh, no spoilers, by the way, just uh, for listeners. Uh, just, you know, you don't have to watch a movie to listen to this review. Uh, for pros, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind for me is the performances. I mean, you can really feel the grief that the actors are feeling because obviously, uh, while T'Challa in this movie, it's not a spoiler, has died in the Marvel Universe, obviously. It's because, sadly, uh, Chadwick Boseman passed away in real life. So you can really tell the actors are going through it. But then they portray it really realistically. So you take every scene with them very seriously. I'd say the um, best players, probably... Uh, Letitia Wright does a very good job. 
Denai Greer also has a handful of uh, solid scenes. I'd say the star player though is Angela Bassett. She really gives it her all. It's honestly one of the best performances uh, the MCU's ever seen. Won't go into spoils obviously, but there are definitely quite a few moments where she shines. I mean, apart from the people in Wakanda, uh, Tinoch Huerta, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, does a pretty solid job as Namor and portraying his morally grey nature, uh, which I'll get onto more later when we talk about the writing. Another great aspect uh, about Black Panther Wakanda Forever is uh, definitely the visuals. Uh, in a lot of ways, this film is obviously detrimented by um, passing a Chadwick Boseman, so it was never going to be better than the first, but I'd say visually it's 100% better than the first. A lot of people complain about how Marvel looks, uh, their movies, they look like really grey and manufactured, but then this is a lot of life to it somehow, even with the passing hanging over it. For example, the cinematography is pretty amazing for a Marvel movie, it's honestly one of their best in terms of that aspect. But also the CGI, I mean, you, a lot of fans might know about the issues Marvel's had with CGI this year, especially with their shows because of the Disney's mistreatment of VFX workers, but that you really can't see that here because, for example, uh, the Namor's people and their action scenes look visually really impressive. Wakanda looks great. Honestly, I, can't, I can only really do nitpicks in terms of CGI this time because honestly, the entire movie, VFX is really consistent. Now for like one final pro, I guess, the writing was Pretty great, uh, on par with the first film, honestly. Especially with um, Namor, because in the comics, Namor is this really morally great character. He is a hero, but he's a lot of villainous aspects to him that make him sort of unlikable, and that really comes through in this movie. When I um, think about Namor's portrayal, I think back to Black Adam, which I also saw uh, recently. Uh, compared to that, Namor really comes through as like an anti-hero. Like he's definitely not like a, a new ally to the um, people of Wakanda, like, uh, like uh, Shuri and Queen Ramonda. She, he's definitely a villain in this movie, but his reasoning and his motivations are certainly uh, interesting. I'd also say his a backstory with uh, Talakan and how that came about. No spoilers, obviously, but that would really just—it was really interesting, honestly. I thought it would be really generic, considering another comparison, DC, sorry, because of the similarities to Aquaman Atlantis, but you don't really see that. They really tried to make it its own thing, so I thought that was really cool. All right, that sounds like an incredibly thought-provoking review right there, but to make it all-encompassing, could you just go over a few of the drawbacks of the movie? Now, in terms of cons, uh, I don't think this movie's perfect. It's definitely not without its drawbacks. Uh, the f main con I can think of comes from its need to introduce uh, threads for future entries of the MCU. For example, uh, Riri Williams, aka Ironheart, is introduced in this movie. Uh, while I don't think she's a bad character by any means, Dominic Thorne does a decent job playing her. It does, I, without spoilers, it should role in the plot is sort of shoehorned and honestly the film didn't really need her. Um, another, the main thing I can think of, of this aspect is uh, Everett uh, Ross is in this movie, Martin Freeman's character from the first movie. Uh, he has a role in the plot but I'm gonna be honest, he, re he they could have cut out pretty much all of his scenes in the movie except for obviously his like 
uh, introductory scene and Haddam is an extended cameo because he spends a lot of time with another character who I won't spoil but their scenes don't contribute anything to the main plot and it, they don't even have a, a real payoff so and then just adds to the runtime which I'll I guess transition on to now the length of this movie is like two hours 40 minutes uh, and I don't think it's that well earned I feel like uh, for example, with the uh, Everett Ross subplot, they really could have taken that time to and dedicate it to other characters. For example, Nakia's in this movie as well, N Lupita Nyong'o's character. I feel like she definitely could have used some more scenes. She's like barely in the movie and the stuff she does uh, is not that significant to the plot. So, I mean, and then those are the two main cons I can think of. I guess for one third con, some of the visuals are okay. For example, I see a lot of complaints about Ironheart's suit. Uh, that does look a little weird. Uh, and it's not, like I said, because, you know, the issues with Marvel 3 effects. It does come through in some place, but not a lot. So those are all the cons I can think of. Thank you so much, Ange, for your movie review. We hope to see you on future episodes. Yeah, thank you. And that's it from us here at Debrief. We hope you enjoyed listening to our third episode just as much as we enjoyed making it. Thank you for tuning into this episode of DC Debrief and make sure you keep listening for there is more to come. This has been Kumar's Mustafa, Aditi, Mariam and Azka. We'd also like to take a moment to appreciate the rest of our team for all their efforts in putting this episode together. So thank you Isha and Isabella for your extra hard work behind the scenes. And thank you to Mrs. Ruddle and Mrs. Maguire for helping us make DC Debrief possible. Thank you again for listening in and hopefully you found this episode interesting. See you soon. <laughs>